Imagine you have to rebuke someone, but you know that the other person isn't going to take it very well. They might get upset or defensive or just deny it and storm away in a huff. So this is the challenge. How do you get your message across without causing upset? Perhaps we should learn a lesson from the prophet Isaiah. He's got a word of judgment and warning for the people, but he knows how quickly they put up barriers. He needs a way around their defensiveness, so he sings them a song in the form of an allegory, a story, a poem, or a picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning, often a moral one. The allegory in this case is in the form of a love song that some commentators think could have become life as a wedding song for the best man to sing at the wedding. The vineyard is a metaphor for the bride and the bride a metaphor for Israel. The song opens with the tender, careful, devoted courtship of the bride, telling of the gifts the bridegroom had bestowed upon her, how he had provided for her and protected her. In the annals of music, there have been some moving ballads about love gone bad. Here are just a few examples. My John Deere was breaking in your field, while your dear John was breaking my heart. You were only a splinter as I slid down the banister of life. And my personal favourite, my wife ran off with my best friend, and I sure do miss him. (laughs) All classic songs, no doubt, but none match Isaiah's original hit. You were a bunch of sour grapes in my vineyard of love. As an aside, last month Karen and Morag were discussing the songs for the care home services and Morag came out with the mortal, Karen, could you think of another song about the cross, but could you make it a cheerier one? <laughs> so let's take a closer look at the song of the vineyard. The people of Israel knew all about grapes. One of the three harvest festivals was the autumn festival of booths, Sukkoth which recalled the wilderness journey of the Hebrew people and the grape harvest. It was at this festival, so scholars believe, that Isaiah the prophet rose to offer his prophecy, the song of the vineyard. Owning a vineyard, or at least planting grapes, was very common, so the people listening would have known the tremendous effort it takes to produce a good crop. Just clearing the field of stones was no mean feat. There is an Arab proverb about the rockiness of the Palestinian land, which says that when God created the world, an angel flew over it carrying a bag of stones under each arm. As he flew over Palestine, one bag broke so that half of all the stones in the world lie there. The listeners too knew the effort of picking out the best grape seeds, tending the plants, creating a watchtower to make sure animals and thieves did not trample the seedlings or eat the grapes. They knew the efforts of creating an irrigation system, watering the plants, pruning back the grapevines, and weeding in the hot sun. And lastly, you needed a place to press the grapes and collect the juice. And this would be hard work, as the wine vat, wine vat was most likely carved out of solid rock. It usually takes at least two years for a grape seed to mature and bear fruit. And in many cases, vineyard grapes are not suitable for wine until at least the seventh harvest. Vineyards are large investments of time, money, and effort. So what had God done for his vineyard Israel? Isaiah's song is a parable about how the Lord had always nurtured his covenant people. From the beginning, God had treated Israel with astonishing grace. Historically, he had saved them from slavery in Egypt. He had brought them through the wilderness, fed them with manna and water from the rock, and brought them into the promised land, the land of milk and honey. He had given them laws to live by, 
Moses told the people that the surrounding nations would marvel at the wisdom of the law, saying, What great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law I am setting before you today? Deuteronomy 4, verse 8. God gave them land to live on. Houses filled with all sorts of goods that they did not fill, hewn cisterns that they did not hew, vineyards and olive groves that they did not plant. Deuteronomy 6, verse 11. They didn't have to earn the land, just take care of it. As Moses reminded them later, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God gave you the land. God also gave them leaders to follow. Throughout the book of Judges, whenever the people were overrun by one or other of the surrounding nations, they would weep and wail and repent and promise to behave if only God would save them. From Deborah to Gideon to Samson, God kept sending them people to pull them out of the hot water they themselves had jumped into. He sent them prophets like Samuel, and at last he gave in to their begging, and he gave them a king. Just like a real vineyard, everything should have been in place for a good harvest. However, immediately after the declaration of love, unexpectedly the song turns into a lawsuit. We are in a divorce court with the bride, the vineyard, on trial because expectations did not match reality. Lawsuits are very much in the news nowadays. People are suing each other for every reason you can imagine, even over religious differences. Probably the most ridiculous lawsuit you could imagine was a young girl who recently sued her parents for having her without her consent. I watched an interview with her and she said they did not even try and consult me to see whether I wanted to be born. Ironically, she won her case but then lost it on appeal. I don't often want to throw things at the TV, but I was close. Many of the jurors in our lawsuit would be hill farmers who knew exactly what it took to produce a good yield of grapes. So God challenges them to find anything wrong with his care of the land. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? God asks the question, but silence is the only answer. There is nothing more the owner uh, could have done, nothing he had left undone. There is no point in going on. Our love song has turned into dirge, a fact that might have been anticipated in Isaiah chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, which read, The Lord takes his place in court. He rises to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of his people. It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord God Almighty. The expected harvest from God's vineyard was justice and righteousness, but instead there was bloodshed and cries of distress. Mistreatment of their fellow man with violence and oppression were sadly the norms in Isaiah's day. Kevin's going to put up a slide, hopefully, on the screen. Yep, there we go. Um, God looked for justice, misfat, but finds oppression and injustice, misbach. He looks for righteousness, sedaka, but hears cries, zedak, zedka, of wretchedness. We don't see it in English, but in the original Hebrew, this is two sets of closely rhyming pairs. One commentator translates it God looked for right, right but found riot. He looked for decency, but found despair. On Judah's branches, there was no pleasing fruit of the Spirit, only a putrid harvest of sin. 
The original Hebrew word translated as wild here is beashim, and it is associated with stinking or worthless things that are only fit for destruction. Eugene Peterson, in the message version of the Bible, calls them garbage grapes. In later verses in chapter 5, Isaiah outlines six woes, the six sins that provide a summary of the wild grapes of verses 1 to 7. They are greed, covetousness and extortion, verses 8 to 10. Drunkenness, revelry and fleshly self-indulgent, verses 11 to 17. Carelessness, hard-heartedness and mockery, 18 to 19. Deception and perversion, verse 20. Pride and conceit, verse 21. And injustice and corruption, verses 22 to 25. In Matthew 23, Jesus himself lays out seven woes for the scribes and Pharisees and pronounces judgment on them. The sins of the Pharisees and scribes sound eerily like the wild grapes produced by the vineyard of Isaiah's day. And this would not be the last time God was disappointed by fruit. You will recall Jesus, while on a journey, walked up to a fig tree that looked like it was ready for picking, but it was not. Jesus was seemingly angry at the tree for false advertising. It was presenting an appearance that didn't match its reality, just like God's vineyard in Isaiah. So what was God's judgment? The theme of our reading seems to be a call to repentance, but that never actually appears in the text. There is only the contrast between what God the farmer had done and what he would do in the future. In verses 5 and 6 of our text we read, Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. In other words, he's going to let his people see what it's like to live without his protection. God's judgment came not just because the people he loved didn't love him in return, but because, as he once told Cain, the blood of their victims cries out to him. Wickedness is terrible, but it is all the more so when it is committed by the very people selected by God to model righteousness, by the very people selected to receive his love. The Israelites had been given absolutely everything they needed to produce a just and decent society, one that should have been a showcase for God's righteousness, and they had thrown it away and trampled it in the mud. When Isaiah began his ministry, most of the northern kingdom had already been annexed by Assyria. So Judah had an example right in front of their eyes of what happened to a people when God's favour was withdrawn. But did they get it? Did they connect with the possibility that what happened in the north might happen to them in the south if they didn't repent. Of course they didn't. History tells us that the northern kingdom of Israel was defeated by Assyria and taken into bondage in 721 BC. The ten tribes were lost and never heard from again. Judah was defeated by Babylon and taken into exile. The land was despoiled, the temple destroyed, the mighty brought low. In 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem itself would be destroyed. What God, God spoke of through the prophet Isaiah came to pass. God had lifted his protecting hand and the land of Israel was indeed laid waste. It is this type of retribution that makes many people question the justness and mercy of the God of the Old Testament. In reality, however, back in chapter 3, God asked the men of Judah to decide the case. Now he declares that they pronounce judgment on themselves. It is the same thing the prophet Nathan did to David when pronouncing judgment on him for his adultery and murder of Uriah. In 2 Samuel 12, we can read, 
the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. So what can we learn from this passage? There are parallels between Israel's sin and our own, as well as between Israel's gifts and our own. Public displays of piety accompanied by self-indulgence, abuse of power and political corruption is commonplace today. Money trumps morality wherever you look. Worship of false, false gods is all around us, and the gods of political correctness and sexual freedom have grown in power. One of Frank Sinatra's all-time hits was the song My Way. One reason it was such a hit was that it said what many people believed and wanted to hear. They did not want to hear that everything belongs to God and that whatever we do must be done to his glory. So we too need to ask ourselves a question. Are we being obedient and giving God what rightfully belongs to him or are we keeping it all for ourselves? I said earlier that in Matthew 23, Jesus laid out seven woes for the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. You have turned God's house of prayer into a place for your own profit. What if we change the words from scribes and Pharisees to the Church of Scotland, or more specifically, Downfield Mains Church? What if we change the words to Keith, or Peter, or Rod, or Hazel? Or indeed any one of you. The song of the vineyard applies to us today in exactly the same way it did to the people of Judah. Just think of how much love God has poured into us, his vineyard. He chose us. He saved us from captivity to sin through the saving work of Christ, his only son. God has given us a new home in his church where he speaks to us through his word and he fills us with his spirit. And God gives us so many other gifts. We have freedom and prosperity, schools, homes, a peaceful land in which to live and to serve him faithfully. Just like the Israelites, God has given us every good blessing. It's a gift of grace, sure evidence of God's loving care. And it means that the Lord is right to seek from us a harvest of good grapes. Just like Israel, God has given us leaders. Over the years, we have had some great leaders, but we have also had some right plonkers with dodgy haircuts. There's an old cliche that people get the government they deserve. We don't appear to deserve very much, do we? Similarly, we have been given the law. Not only have we been given God's moral law, as expressed in his word, but our Scottish legal system was once world-renowned perhaps echoing Moses' remarks to the Israelites about the reputation they would get because of the wisdom of their laws. How wise are some of the laws that our government here in Scotland has passed recently? It is a sad day when government passes legislation that the vast majority of their people do not support, such as the Gender Recognition Reform Bill, 
or the legislation relating to age of responsibility. It is ironic that the government that wants to reduce the voting age to further its own ends also passed legislation to the effect that you cannot be punished as an adult until age 25. Like Israel, we have been given absolutely everything we need to produce a just and decent society, one that could be a showcase for God's righteousness. The question we need to ask is, have we borne it too? In Matthew 7, verse 20, Jesus said, Just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. The lesson from Isaiah is that their appearance, individually and corporately, as a church, has to be matched by reality. As a community of believers, a vineyard altogether, God expects us to be a church which loves his word and a church that cares for the poor. He wants us to be the people who have compassion for the lost and those who treat one another with love, grace and forgiveness, exactly what it says on these sweatshirts over there. Think of how many of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5 relate to our actions towards other people. Love, peace, patience, kindness and gentleness. Does our life together as a congregation show a good harvest or is there a disappointing harvest of selfishness, envy and impatience? Do we forget the poor and ignore or even judge the lost? All being well, in a few months we will move back into our sanctuary. We will have a warm, comfortable church, well decorated, full of modern technology and lighting. But will it be like the emperor's new clothes? As individual branches in God's vineyard, it's good for us too to consider what kind of fruit we bear for the Lord. Think of it in terms of the woes that Isaiah announced. Do I live in greed? Greed for more money or greed for more glory? Am I a drinking champion every weekend? Is my spirit proud? Am I conceited or corrupt or deceitful? The basic premise in our text from Isaiah is what more could God have done? For us, he sent his only son to the cross. Romans 5.8 reads, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. To paraphrase Isaiah, Now you dwellers in Dundee, you people of Scotland, judge between God and the vineyard. What more could have been done for this people than God has done for us? When God looked for good grapes, why does it yield so much bad? Not long after Isaiah's time, Judah was judged. It happened again to Israel after they rejected Jesus. And that's what can still happen to us, the vineyard of God. Judgment can happen. It will happen when there's no living response to the Saviour. A vine is good for fruit or it is good for nothing. So what are we doing? What are you doing to prepare yourself for the possibility that God will pull the rug out from under a nice, cushy situation? In John 15, Jesus tells us, my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So what does that look like? Let's examine some of the traits of a fruitful disciple, identified by Billy Graham. Firstly, a confident prayer life. John 15:7 describes the prayer life of a disciple. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. Here, the word abide doesn't mean to hang around or wait. It bears a connotation of endurance and a sense of expectancy. In the world, the word hope means to wish. In the Bible, it refers instead to a sense of holy expectation. Not so much hoping, but knowing that God is going to come through for you in a way consistent with his word. When those around us see we are confident that God is going to come through for us, the chances are better they will take the gospel more seriously 
because they see that it works. Second, a joyful heart. John 15, 11 reads, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. It's important to understand that being full of joy doesn't mean to feel happy. When circumstances are not ideal in the life of a fruitful disciple, he or she may still have a feeling of sadness or disappointment, but have a sense of peace at the same time. That's a picture of biblical joy, having a deep peace about the situation, out of knowledge that God's perspective is different and that he is all-knowing. The world is not looking for us to lead perfect lives. Rather, they are watching for us to see how we handle it when things are going against us. Thirdly, a genuine love for other people. A love for Christ and indifference towards someone else cannot successfully coexist. Jesus tells us, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love for someone else is not dictated by a feeling. It is represented by a choice and an action. When we choose to love other people by our service to them, even those who are unlovable, we are speaking volumes about the very real power of the gospel. And lastly, learn to disagree agreeably. John Gray wrote the best-selling book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. His underlying thesis is this. In order to get along with someone, you have to try and see life from their perspective. And that's not easy. Paul wrote, Clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, close yourself with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. Those who need others to think and exact, exactly, act exactly the way they do, or have a deep-seated need to have their views and actions confirmed in the behaviour and thoughts of others, are basically insecure people. Real life doesn't work like that. Disagreements happen in any relationship where more than one person is involved. We are all unique and we are not likely to agree on everything. But the way we approach our disagreements can determine whether a relationship makes it to the finishing line. Opening yourselves to the ideas of others and to new ways of doing things is how you grow. And who knows, in the end, you may even agree to disagree. The important thing is to respect the other person's ideas and seek to create an environment where you can feel free to express your feelings and be who you really are without being judged. Being fruitful is about nothing less than making God present in the here and now, in the midst of whatever might be going on. It's about God's expectations and desire coming to fruition in the vineyard of our lives and in this community. And that's on us. In the words of one writer, Superman is not going to do it. Santa Claus is not bringing it. And the Coke machine isn't dispensing it. That's our work. That's our participation in the divine life. What more was there to do for my vineyard, God asked, that I have not done for it? Nothing. Now it's your turn and my turn to step up, speak out, Fill the gap and make God real in the world today. Every gap is a calling, an asking, an invitation from God, waiting for us to step in and fill it. Unless there is a, there is a response on our part, nothing happens. I want to close with another vineyard song, this time from Psalm 80. You transplanted the vine from Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it and it took root and filled the land. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it and insects from the fields feed in it. 
Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the son you have raised up for yourself. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. We can take comfort and joy in knowing that God did rest his hand on the man at his right hand. He did anoint the Son of Man and raise him to be our Redeemer, so that we too might call on the Lord's name. In Christ he restores us, in Christ he makes his face shine upon us, and in Christ we are saved. Thanks be to God. Amen.